Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. This episode is being recorded live from the NRFshop.org Digital Summit 2016 on Monday, September 26th, 2016. As usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, we found something pretty exciting for the show this week. Oh, did we? What is that? It's a real live entrepreneur. We are excited to have David Belotsky on the show. David is the founder and CEO of Uncommon Goods. David, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And thank you guys for having me. Cool. You enjoying Dallas? You're uh, you're based out of New York. Uh, are you in Brooklyn or Manhattan? Or I live in Manhattan on the Lower East Side, and our company is based in Sunset Park, wow, okay. non-hipster Brooklyn. Good, good. So you escaped the cold weather of New York to come down here to Dallas. That's right. <laughs> we were in this meeting today, and it was like 20 degrees in there, so I was freezing. So Yes, it's ironic bringing a, a jacket to, to Dallas at the end of the summer. Yep, but you got to do it. You never know how the AC is going to crank in these places. So, Dave, um, how did you get into the industry of, of e-commerce? Prior to starting on Common Goods, I was a research analyst at Goldman Sachs, and I studied. Uh, I started out studying traditional retailers, and my job was to try to determine whether or not they were good investments. So, companies like AutoZone, Best Buy, Guitar Center. Uh, Circuit City, Home Depot, Lowe's, and others. And it was fascinating work. And in the mid-1990s, I learned about the Internet from a friend of mine who was a Ph.D. student and uh, showed me it was a great resource for jokes. I think it was alt.humor or something. This was oh. before there were images Usenet. on the Internet. All right, go on Usenet. Old yeah. school? Yeah. And it, for the record, TV it still TV. is a good resource for jokes. <laughs> yeah. Really? I didn't know it still existed. And I remember going out to dinner with uh, with him and his girlfriend and just having my mind blown that the Internet was this amazing repository of information. And at the time, didn't connect it with retailing, but fast forward to, I guess, 1996, and Amazon and others were emerging on the scene. And uh, I started writing about retail online. I thought it was the most exciting thing I had seen in business and thought it had huge potential and within a couple of years decided I'd much rather be trying to do it than write about other people doing it. Yeah. And uh, David sent me some of his research. It was fascinating. It was like a, like a good 120 pages on, on kind of circa 1999, kind of the where e-commerce was going. And it had some glossy pages in the middle. And some of them were, you know, an example of how you would go to a site and search and look, this site recommends something. It was really funny. It was so, so very painfully early. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there was one part where he said it could get to be, you know, like a hundred million dollars or something. I don't, I don't know what it was. It was like kind of a, kind of a, yeah, a, a, a 15 to 20% is what we were saying yeah, back yeah. then. Which, yeah. But that's, uh, a, yeah, you were right. Yeah. There. It took a took a lot longer in some ways, yeah, than others. And then a, the the famous analyst that kind of got um, it, it, the dot com bubble didn't go well for him was a budget, and he had kind of called Amazon as like I forget what the number was like a three hundred dollar stock, and everyone thought that was crazy. But now it's probably like 
four X that at this point, if you account for all the splits and stuff. Yeah. They've been a phenomenal success. Yeah. Did you, I didn't get to read the whole book. Did you, um, what, what were your early thoughts about Amazon back then? My feeling was that they did everything right from a customer perspective. And it was unclear to me what their economic model was. I, it was not a stock that I was uh, in a position to follow. I was following or doing research on store-based retailers. Okay. Uh, but I thought they had, and still think they have, the strongest combination of service selection and, most importantly, price uh, out there. And uh, I felt like if they could figure out a way to make money, which they have now, uh, but if they could, that they'd be very tough to compete with. Got it. So then you got so enamored with this, you decided to start your own business. Exactly. That's uh, taking the plunge. And when did you start Uncommon Goods? In 1999. In 1998, I started looking at different opportunities and uh, gave my notice in early 99, but had to give uh, three months notice. And then so summer of 99 is when I started. Ah, cool. And you've been at it since ever since then? Yes. Cool. How, how big is Uncommon Goods? We are over a hundred year-round team members and have grown every one of our seventeen years. That's terrific. And if you're willing to say, uh, primarily through organic growth, have you raised a lot of capital to grow the business? Or? We have not. So back in 1999, uh, 2000, we raised a little money, and then in 2003, we had a near-death experience as a business, or actually really between 2000 and 2003, we went from 35 people down to five. And uh, the company was on real thin ice. It was a very difficult time. And uh, we raised a little money in 2003 and for the past 13 years have not raised any more. So we've remained independent. The company's majority owned by our team members, not outside investors. That's that's terrific. There there are some pundits in the industry that keep talking about how pure play e-commerce sites are dead and don't exist and can't be profitable. And you're you're not even the first guest on the show to disprove that notion, but you're the latest. That's great. Yeah. Let's go back for a second. Tell tell our listeners uh, a little bit about Uncommon Goods. Like what what's the value prop? What do you sell? Sure. And let me maybe tell you where the idea came yeah. from. Yeah. So yeah. I was looking around at different retail categories. That was my job. And I thought that uh, art supplies might be an interesting uh, category. And the more work I did on it, uh, the more it seemed that that was a market in a state of decline. Uh, and as I was talking to somebody about art supplies and crafts, uh, they told me, oh, you should really uh, check out um, um, the crafts market, as in the Michael Store craft market. And I looked at that, and it was just not something that spoke to me as an individual. But as I was looking at that, I was thinking about finished goods as well, artisan product, and went to the Smithsonian Museum a craft show in April of 99 in Washington, D.C., and was blown away by how crowded it was. I mean, the aisles were packed with affluent consumers. And one of the things I always did as a research analyst was go talk to customers who in New York, they think you're a little crazy, but I'm used to that. But I'd walk up and down the aisles and ask them why they were shopping there. And almost to a person, they said, because I'm looking 
for something different than you would find in the mall, something that speaks to my individuality, or if I'm giving you a gift, I want to show that I put some thought into it. And I thought, wow, the internet is perfect for this. It's open 24-7. These were artisans that were traveling some as far away as California to try to sell their goods, and the internet provided a much more efficient market. So we sell more than half of what we sell is handmade product. Uh, it's primarily from independent artisans that may not have the marketing clout uh, or manufacturing capacity, production capacity to sell to major retailers. Um, and then there's some manufactured product as well, typically innovative, creative design product. Got you. And for the handmade product, is the product depth in really shallow, I'm imagining? So you have to churn a lot of products or... Are these folks that can remake the same things? It's it's a mix. So some of our suppliers are, you know, super mom and pop, very small, and that's fine with us. You know, we just, you know, we want to meet our suppliers where they are. So some, we also have a print catalog, and those are products where we're going to look to sell higher volume. And so what we say to our suppliers is, we don't want to put you in the catalog if you can't meet the demand, but if you can, then we certainly want you there. Cool. Who, how would you describe your customer? Who is it that kind of is interested in buying these kinds of products? Is it a male, female, affluent, non-affluent? What, what's that look like? It's 70 to 80% women, uh, definitely above average income and, uh, you know, skews to East and West coast, urban, and to a lesser extent, suburban and, uh, above average education and psychologically somebody, as I said earlier, that's looking to uh, uh, show who they are through the products that they buy for themselves and that they give as gifts. Cool. And are you trying to curate the product specifically for that customer? Like do you, do you have a persona in mind and you're deciding what she might like and what she might not like in terms of what you decide to carry? You know, we we do handpick product and try real hard not to offer product that we think is wrong for our customer, if you will. But we have a pretty wide range of shoppers. So I'd say there would be multiple personas and we're not quite that rigid about it. Okay. Um, and so when you talk about handmade goods, obviously a lot of listeners immediately in their mind goes to the sort of Etsy model. And just to be clear... Like Etsy is selling primarily as a marketplace. So they're helping those, those, those folks sell their own goods. You're a, a retailer that's buying their goods, owning them and reselling them to consumers. Do I have that right? Exactly. So you can sell on Etsy and on uncommon goods on Etsy as an artist, you're going to largely be doing your own marketing and your own fulfillment, customer service, what have you uncommon goods. We do that for you. So I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but we like the way we do it. Sure. And I also imagine as a consumer that wants uh, to purchase a handmade good, one of the differences is going to be you, uh, your assortment is going to be a little more curated. So you, you've provided some editorial decision, whereas, you know, there, there could be a, for better or worse, there could be a very broad assortment of similar items on, in, it. on, a, med, on a marketplace. Right. Yeah. We have a much more edited assortment yeah how, how do you um 
kind of drilling into that curation, how do you go and find these artisans? Do you kind of, do you have buyers that scour the world or the artisans come to you and pitch or is there like a certain kind of, you know, uh, I noticed on your site, there's a lot of stuff for pets. Is there kind of like a, you have an idea for like a thematic approach or how does that work? So we have buyers organized by merchandise category and they do everything that you described. So they'll go out to trade shows uh, and craft shows and meet with artists, designers. Uh, and once we're working with somebody, we're constantly looking to grow the business with them. We try to maintain relationships over many years with our suppliers. Um, we don't do a heck of a lot right now sourcing product overseas. Uh, we're starting to do more of that. The competitive bar in terms of what makes something uncommon uh, keeps rising. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to keep uh, one step ahead of the competition there. Yeah, it may be a good uh, transition to uh, uh, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if I didn't ask the Amazon question. I imagine that that makes it hard to find uncommon stuff because, uh, you know, I think they have 400 million items now. So that, that's a that's a pretty large circle on the Venn diagram of what products that, that Amazon would carry. Um, and you've seen Amazon over a really long arc. So, so kind of curious to also hear your thoughts on. You know, the, you mentioned they found their profit kind of thing. You know, would love to hear your kind of analysis of how Amazon is doing or do you consider them a competitor? They have a new kind of handmade kind of initiative. Um, would love to hear all your thoughts on, on all things Amazon. So I have uh, enormous respect for them as a competitor. Um, and we watch what they do reasonably closely, but focus mostly on doing what we do better. I think that's the best the best way to compete with Amazon is uh, to give your customer a reason to shop at your store as opposed to theirs. And so our main focus is exclusive product, great service, and competitive pricing. We don't try to beat them uh, in two-day shipping. We're just not going to win that battle, and we try not to get in price wars. We've tested that with them to see how low uh, they'll go with their pricing and, you know, Driving a price down for us is going to hurt us more than it's going to hurt Amazon with their 400 million or whatever it is product. So, um, you know, we we think there's an element of emotion to shopping, and we think that kind of human connection is something that's easier to convey and something that we certainly invest in. Uh, we tell the story of the artists and designers that make the product on our site and give them much more marketing support than they're going to have on an Amazon with 400 million other products. Cool. You, you mentioned exclusive. Do you go in and when you find <clears throat> these products, that's part of the buying um, kind of thing is to make sure you guys have some window of exclusivity on these things or, or how does that work? So about a third of what we sell is exclusive and that's up from maybe 2% seven or eight years ago. That's been a focus because we saw uh, the writing on the wall, the importance of having product that's only available on uncommon goods. And it's certainly something that we encourage uh, our suppliers to consider. We don't demand it, but uh, certainly if we get an exclusive product, that's something that we're likely to put more mar- marketing support behind. We also design, we have a, a whole product development team in-house. And so we design and get product manufactured that's exclusive to us too. Yeah. Is, how do you get the ideas from that? Is it from um, customer interviews or um, I always 
uh, I've met some people that they kind of mine null search results and kind of look at that and, uh, or those search results that don't return, uh, you know, a, an item, um, any, any insight into how you guys come up with those products? So a lot of it is looking at what we sell, what's selling on the site and trying to riff on that. Sometimes we'll get requests from customers. Oftentimes it's an existing product that an artist may be making and she can't make the kind of uh, volumes that we need. And so we may license that design uh, from an artist. We've done that. You know, we had a popcorn bowl, which uh, one of many people's pet peeves is biting into an unpopped kernel. Mm -hmm. And this bowl has a built-in filter at the base. She designed this great product, but uh, she couldn't uh, produce the volumes we needed. So we went out and got it manufactured and pay her a licensing fee. Cool. Can you, um, what are some of the top sellers kind of in the recent past? Like if you're comfortable sharing, just kind of yeah, give, I'll give you a sense idea of, of the what, range yeah. of items. So we sold one product that I thought would never sell, but make a great statement is a map of the United States made out of vintage license plates, each cut into the shape of the respective state, sometimes multiple license I've plates. I've seen those in restaurants and always liked them. Yeah. Um, so that was something years ago, and it's an over $3,000 item. I didn't think our customer would go for it, and, and she did. Um, we sell um, uh, a pistachio pedestal, which <laughs> is uh, you know solving the problem of what do you do with uh, uh, used pistachio shells. It's a two-tier uh, product. Uh, and we've done well with some framed art, some personalized product as well. In uh, personalized product, I'm particularly interested in, that feels like one of the sort of uh, defensible areas from Amazon at the moment. Uh, They're starting to get into that too. Yeah, uh, but arguably uh, their footprint of a fulfillment center suddenly isn't quite as big a competitive advantage when you're making a product on demand for a particular customer or personalizing it for customers. Are you, you know, tell me how, what is your strategy around that? The product personalization, is that an area of emphasis for you or are you seeing more demand from customers for personalized product? It's been personalized products, been a strong category for us for a number of years. And, uh, my hope is that it will continue to be, um, what I like about it is what you described, which is that, it is something, if the customer is looking for it from you, it is more defensible. You also don't have an inventory commitment, so you're not going to be overstock on personalized product. Yeah, uh, another thing I tend to like about personalized product is uh, returns usually are not allowed, um, or at least minimized. Yeah, we offer forever returns. It's something we instituted about five years ago, uh, there was definitely some trepidation on the team. And my feeling was I want the customer to be happy. I had had an experience with L.L. Bean where I had a shirt that uh, the, my bony elbows uh, wore out. And uh, I called them up and uh, asked them what their return policy was. They told me forever returns. And they looked up the order and they couldn't find it in their system. And I thought it had been in the last five years. And they said, no, it must have been more than that. It turns out it was an eight-year-old shirt. Um, I hadn't worn it for years, but it was sitting in my closet because one of these days I was going to return it. And my feeling yeah. was, you know what? It's great that they stand behind their product. And I've told a lot of people that story and we try to have that same attitude. And so on personalized product, 
we uh, will offer a return if the customer is unsatisfied with quality. The personalization you're doing, is it mostly people's names on things or like little, little sayings like, like um, baby gifts or something like that? It's typically names. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I've seen some products on your site though, like uh, photo books and things like that, where they seem like the customers get an opportunity to put the picture of your dog on a handbag is one. Yeah. I mean, we have a few that involve images as well, but by and large it's names. Nice. Um, and you, you mentioned uh, something very near and dear to my heart earlier that uh, a big part of the shopping experience is emotional. Um, and so, you know, historically one of the challenge with e-commerce is it's, Hard to create that same experiential experience that that uh, many of us are familiar with from retail stores. And for listeners, this is where Scott's eyes are rolling in the back of his head. He's, <laughs> he's convinced this can all be converted to ones and zeros. Um, like, talk to me. Like, have you? Do you have any particular ideas in terms of user experience? How you create emotion on a e-commerce site is it primarily around the product and product assortment or how how do we get that emotion into that e-commerce shopping experience i think of it as trying to recreate the experience of meeting an artist at a craft show and hearing about their story and it does not matter to every customer but to the customer that we're trying to target it does matter and so telling that story effectively including a picture of the artist and perhaps the artist at work. I think those are all important elements. We're starting uh, to investigate video a little late to the game, but uh, that's something where I think there's an even stronger opportunity. Yep, and uh, I think that's a perfect example. Like you, you don't have a product description; you have a story, right? Um, and that like seems like a very intentional label, which sort of sets the the precedent there. And then obviously there's detailed information about all the makers, and so you you get that more personal connection with the item than, than you would on a, on a more pure attribute-based product detail. Right. Page. If somebody wants a drinking glass, you can go to Walmart or Amazon and get a much less expensive, equally functional glass. If you want a piece of art to drink out of, that's the customer that's looking to come to us or something that's going to put a smile on your face that you might not find somewhere else. Yeah, and I assume a, a good chunk of your your customers are for gifting as well. Yes. Um, so, do you uh, maybe tying back to the the marketing topic? Like, are there things you do to sort of help help gift givers find your site, or how, how do you? You know, so we have, as I mentioned earlier, a print catalog, and we've studied when. We get the best response from shoppers and certainly uh, around gifting holidays like Christmas, uh, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Valentine's Day. Those are our big times a year. Uh, we have paid search program, SEO, uh, some social media advertising as well. So we definitely pursue gifting. One of the uh, strategic imperatives we've got uh, going on right now is trying to drive more year-round business, both year-round gifting as well as self-purchase. Nice. And when we talk about marketing vehicles, I'm always curious, do, do you have a, a a personal favorite? Like, is there a vehicle that's your go-to vehicle that you feel like gives you an outsized return? 
So I would say my personal favorite is the one that we're not yet mastering. Okay. So uh, right now, social media, and it's probably for the past 18 months, our marketing team has been hearing a lot from me on what I think is a really significant opportunity. It's a nut that we've yet to crack. Um, you know, SEO is a wonderful thing because the uh, the advertising to sales ratio is very attractive. Catalog is the single biggest source of customers. So I love all our marketing children. I love all my children. <laughs> <laughs> when, when did you start with the catalog? Uh, we started with the catalog actually right after 9-11. Uh, so it was holiday 2001. Was that a reaction to just, you, it's interesting because there's many catalogers that went to e-commerce, but not that many e-commerce folks that kind of added a catalog. Yeah. So back in that, uh, that time we found internet advertising was incredibly expensive. You had all the bubble companies making deals with AOL and their stocks were going up because they signed a $50 million deal that maybe had $5 million of economic value, and we weren't going to play in that space. So we were looking for how can we acquire customers cost-effectively, and our head of marketing at the time uh, started us with postcards, didn't work too well. We did a four-sided mailer, and then he came back one day and said, you know, we could do a 16-page mailer if we printed a couple hundred thousand for the same price as a postcard. And I said, huh, that sounds interesting. And so we did did a catalog. It ended up being 32 pages uh, that holiday season, and the economics were very good. And so it was much better than customer acquisition online. So catalog was a more effective way of reaching customers. Got it. Interesting. And out of curiosity, uh, do you guys have a, a very sophisticated attribution model in, inside of Uncommon Goods? Do you, are you mostly, like, so you mentioned, hey, we don't think we're great at social yet, but uh, that seems like an opportunity. Um, obviously, when you're looking at last-click attribution, some of those other, other tactics that, you, that you're more focused on look much better than social. Um, often, social doesn't win the media mix unless you start thinking about more sophisticated attribution cross device attribution and yeah it's more top of the funnel and that's part of what uh, we're working on i think we're pretty good at at attribution but always looking to get better i'm sure we could all get better um you you mentioned cross device uh that brings up another uh topic near and dear to the jason and scott show uh these newfangled uh supercomputers i think they call them uh mobile phones yeah yeah that smartphones the the kids are starting to carry Yeah, uh, is, uh, I assume you're starting to see a lot of your traffic uh, come from the mobile devices. Um, I'd be curious uh, if you if you have a particular mobile strategy. We talk a lot about that mobile gap where you're starting to get more traffic on mobile devices, but maybe it doesn't convert as well as your traditional desktop traffic. Yeah, so we, I would say, are doing okay on mobile. We have about 40% of our traffic and a little less than half of that in terms of revenue from mobile. So we definitely experience that conversion gap. It's something we're very focused on. Uh, We have a lot of opportunity with site speed on mobile. Uh, It's a nice way of saying that our mobile site is too slow. Uh, (laughs) 
at the same time, we're a very image rich business and browsing, you know, we were, I was at a session today where they talked about mobile as hunting, you know, you know what you want, you want to get it and get in and get out. And uncommon goods is much more about browsing than it is. Hey, they come to uncommon goods because they know they want to buy X. It's I want to be inspired at uncommon goods. So figuring out how to do that in a, uh, a light way, fast way is a challenge. But it's mobile is a major focus. Yeah, it's interesting. A couple of things to unpack there. First of all, uh, compliments on bringing up mobile page performance because um, you may not be as fast as you want to be, but I can assure everyone that almost no one is fast enough on mobile. That like we're we're seeing all these depressing stats that mobile pages are getting slower, not faster, right. um, and it's it's one of the strongest correlations we have to e-commerce conversion is page speed. So definitely. Uh, an area that needs more focus for for most of us, um, and I'm not sure the industry has figured out exactly how to do that. But I I wanted to go back to hey the mobile users are are utility hunters and they they already have their strong buying intent to know exactly what they want. Um, I, I see that too in a lot of site analytics. That's a a clear success. Are are folks that recognize they need something and they're out and about and you get these these fast conversions. But we also see a lot of stats that the mobile device is winning more and more of the leisure minutes of typical consumers. And so a lot more of the media that they consume, a lot more of their leisure time is being used on these mobile devices. And so I, I you know, I, I don't necessarily have like some perfect examples yet. Of, of how, how, how about Pinterest? Yeah. I mean, all of those things are predominantly mobile. All the chat services, uh, the majority, you know, more than 50% of all YouTube minutes are mobile. Um, so it's it's not the case that people are only using that mobile device for immediate needs fulfillment. Like it feels like there is very much a, a leisure behavior and, and shopping, of course, has always been a important part of leisure activities. Right. It's, you know, look at the physical store world. So Walmart. You know, some people love just browsing at Walmart, but on average, Walmart is more of a get in, get out, uh, meet my needs. And there are other stores that you'll go into the mall to be entertained. Shopping is entertainment and inspiration. And we definitely fall on that side of the spectrum. Yep. You're the restoration hardware of there you go. e-commerce. Cool. Let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey a little bit. So you worked for kind of the bluest of blue chip companies, you know, Golden Sacks and some Golden Slacks, a lot of people call them. Um, and then you just you know, took the plunge and started your own company. How, how has that journey been? Do you, do you feel like you made the right decision? Would you do it again? And uh, do you entrepreneurs come to you and, and what do you tell them? So I am thrilled that I made the decision that I did, and it was a very difficult one. Goldman Sachs was in the middle of going public. I was a managing director there. So, you know, at, at the depths of uh, our business difficulties in 2001, 2002, it looked like the stupidest thing I ever could have done. And the most painful thing, honestly, was having to go through the downsizing. So two, three years in, recognizing that we were out of money, uh, it was it was really tough. And if you had asked me then, I don't know what I would have told you, but uh, I was not going to give up. And having come through the other side, it's really gratifying. Um, you know, that expression, the harder the battle, the sweeter the victory. You know, there, there have definitely been some serious challenges that 
that we've been through. Uh, and I'm really, really glad that we did it. Yeah. But we're also never done. So every every day brings new challenges. Yeah, it's become um, one thing I think is interesting. It's kind of the fashion uh, in like the last three years with a lot of these startups to be focused on sustainability and kind of have a social element. And you, you've been at it you know, as part of your company for much longer than that. Um, tell us a little bit about that decision and, and um, what it's meant for the company and um, how you treat employees and, and providers. Sure. And I, and I want to go back to what you were asking earlier in terms of what I would tell would-be entrepreneurs, because oh, yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's actually relevant for sustainability as well. Um, I think you have to have the stomach for it. And you're a fellow entrepreneur. Um, when things are fashionable, I try to go in the opposite direction. One of the things that really bothered me about starting Uncommon Goods in 1999 was it was the fashionable thing to do. Uh, but I also knew that it wasn't coming from a place of here's the hot new thing. I want to do it. It's something that for years I had been pining uh, to do. And so one of the big things that I'll tell an entrepreneur is, are you willing to put up with the following set of challenges? Because if you are, and hopefully you're smarter than I am and you won't go through the trials and tribulations that I have uh, and that we have as an organization, but you need to be prepared for that. Um, and if you're not, you shouldn't do it because you've got a responsibility to your fellow team members and to your investors to stick it out through thick and thin. And I would say it's it's similar in a way with sustainability. As you mentioned, sustainability has become fashionable, and and I think that's a great thing. Uh, and when I started the company, it was not from a place of – should we be sustainable or not? When I was a research analyst, I was asked to do some work, actually when I was an assistant, to do some work on a company called Furvault, which sold fur coats. And I did not want to do that. And I didn't want to write about, there was a company, Gander Mountain uh, Hunting Company. And I'm vegetarian since I was 11, and it was against my values. And so I'm a vegetarian. I'm also a libertarian. I don't like telling other people what to do. At the same time, I don't want to create a business that's in conflict with my values. And more importantly, I want to try to build a business that has a positive impact. My mom was a social worker. My dad worked for the United Nations. And I think they were probably pretty surprised they ended up on Wall Street. Uh, But what they constantly drummed into me is leave the world a better place than you found it in whatever small way you can do that. And I saw lots of famous business people who uh, didn't run their business necessarily in the most uh, upstanding way and then donate lots of money to build libraries, universities, or national parks. And there's this movement uh, that started about nine years ago called the B Corporation Movement that basically says – making money and having a positive impact can go hand in hand. And so since we started the company, we've uh, worked hard to pay our team an above average wage. We didn't outsource our warehousing. That was half for business reasons. My view being that in a store, you're coming into contact with the customer. What's your physical contact with the customer at Uncommon Goods? It's the box. Okay, And if we want to control that experience, we should run our own warehouse and we should run our own call center, contact center. So 
we didn't outsource that in New York City. You can imagine that's pretty difficult to run a business, particularly with a sizable warehouse. It's very expensive, and paying people a living wage is very expensive, and that's something that we've worked hard to do uh, over our history. And so, uh, uh, sustainability is most important to me. I recognize we have to balance it with making money uh, and growing the business. Uh, I would not want to be running this company if we were not doing it in a sustainable way. Cool. No. Sustainability means a lot of different things to different people. Do you guys look at kind of from the energy angle? Um, it definitely seems like you've talked about your artisans and um, you know helping them. Um, any interesting stories you can share there of uh, you know how this has impacted people's lives? Yeah, so I would say the most common definition of sustainability is thought of in environmental ways, um, carbon footprint, uh, environmental impact in general. And my view is that it actually starts with people uh, and can your people support themselves? Can your workers support themselves uh, on what they're earning? And that's a huge problem in our country. And I think in our small way, in our corner of Sunset Park, Brooklyn, we're trying to have uh, a positive impact there. And as importantly, treating people with dignity and respect, giving them a voice in decision-making, giving them a voice. We have a pretty flat organization. All being under one roof also helps have more of a we as opposed to us and them mentality. So I'd say that's the people side. And then, as you mentioned, with our vendors, treating them with dignity and respect, trying to have 10, 15-year working relationships with them and help them grow their business and be a steady partner uh, with them. And we have lots of people who have grown from a one-person shop to five or 10 people uh, working there and really having their business blossom. Um, and then the environmental impact, you know, I, I was dead set against printing catalogs in the early days. I said, oh, my God, this is so retro and we're killing all these trees. We can't do this. And part of what we chose to do when we did decide to print a catalog is do it in as sustainable a way as possible. So it's printed on a blend of recycled paper and also what's called FSC, Forest Stewardship Council Certified Paper. The paper industry has their own standard called SFI. You can guess which one has more credibility <laughs> in, in my mind. And we pay more. It's more expensive to have that FSC paper. Uh, but I want that independent standard. Um, and then, you know, if you think about sustainability, it's three Ps. It's people, planet, and profit. And so the last P that I look at is I look at return on investment. And so from my days on Wall Street, you know, how much money are you investing and what kind of profit uh, do you make? And uh, we're very focused on that too. Cool. And, uh, you know, since you kind of start uh, counter trend, a lot of these things are coming your way. So everyone seems to want to move to Brooklyn. I'm not a Northeasterner, but that's <laughs> like, you know, that seems to be the buzz. And then, uh, you know, consumers are, uh, especially millennials, are deeply, you know, passionate about, you know, some of these topics. So, has that helped you kind of as that swung kind of, you know, 10 years ago, no one knew what sustainability was, but you know, now it, it is very, very important to millennials as an audience for sure. Yeah. So as I explained, that's not why we do it. You know, we're going to mm -hmm. do it whether or not it's popular. I do think it helps. So being a B corporation and B Corp is an outside nonprofit that, uh, 
certifies you for your sustainability practices. It's sort of like an IRS audit, hopefully mm-hmm. not quite as painful. I've yet to have an IRS audit, uh, but, uh, I'm knocking on some wood for you. <laughs> Thank yep. you. Me too. Uh, but having that certification and having the kind of business that we do, I think both attracts, uh, people who want to come work at an organization like that and people who want to shop there. So yes, I think it is, it is helping us. Cool. Yep. And does that like so one interesting thing we always talk about is the the competition and challenge around getting the best talent. Um, and I imagine the fact that you you stand for something in particular and that you you've lived the ethos of that has made it at least easier to to attract talent that have a similar philosophy. I think it does. At the same time, some of our philosophies are inconvenient. And if you want to really see what somebody believes, when it starts costing them money or costing them business, that's where you really tell the strength of your conviction. So our moving, we used to be in Greenwich Village. Uh, Being under one roof was not a difficult decision. Moving out to an industrial area in Brooklyn, where we're across from a grinding shop, uh, that is a recruiting challenge. And so I think having the values that we have and our team seeing that we're consistent, that where we are taking a bit of a hit, people understand the reason why. Yeah. Have you ever seen the TV show Silicon Valley? I think I've seen one or two episodes. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a, uh, that, you know, every, it's become such a fashion that it's always like, you know, we've got this awesome compression algorithm and we're going to save the world. <laughs> so it's kind of a, you know, it's become almost like a, uh, a parody in a way that, you know, there's so many companies that kind of attach that to what they, they want to do. Uh, but it's impressive. You had the vision to do that, you know, over 17 years ago and you, you, you walk the walk and talk the talk. I feel like Jessica Alba may have stolen your idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to get a royalty from her. Yeah. She's about uh, rumor has it that, that uh, they could be for sale. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I want to wrap up with, uh, Sort of a changing from the present to the future a little bit. Uh, you you've been very um, on the forefront of identifying some trends early and and uh, sort of cutting against the grain and ultimately, as Scott mentioned, having the the rest of us try to catch up to you. So tell us where we're going to be going next. Like what <laughs> what uh, what's on your roadmap for the next couple of years um, that you'd like to accomplish in Uncommon Goods? So. I would say that, uh, you know, the expression, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. You know, I'm, uh, I'm certainly guilty, uh, guilty of that. And, uh, you know, we, we are an independent, privately owned company, majority of it uh, internally owned. And that limits uh, some of our investment. So we are not, we're not a cutting edge uh, company in terms of technology. And that saves us. <laughs> A fair amount. Uh, our big investment over the next few years, I mean, I, I'd love to tell you we're doing all sorts of things with augmented reality or virtual reality. Uh, I think it's fascinating. I listen with great interest when you guys uh, talk about it. But, you know, we're, we're a lot more pedestrian. We're focused on smartphones, figuring out uh, mobile. Uh, that's, uh, that's a big focus for us. Coming up with a more targeted way uh, to market to our customers, both online and with our catalog, is something that uh, we're focused on. Uh, I'm very focused on the merchandising piece of the business. I think that's 
critical to our long-term success and figuring out how we can be more innovative in our product development uh, as well as in our sourcing uh, are things that I'm intensely focused on. Um, so those are those are things that I'm I'm really uh, trying to drive within our organization. Cool, sounds good. Yeah, very cool, David. It has, of course, happened again. We've completely used up our allotted time. Um, David, we're really grateful for you coming and spending some time with us and sharing the uncommon good story. Um, and we really appreciate your insight. Yeah, we really appreciate it, and we wish you nothing but success. Well, thank you both very much. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.